You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, we just had a straw poll and not all that much got resolved. But we do know one thing about the 2012 GOP nominee. He or she will be a current or former elected official or someone with military experience, to do otherwise, to nominate someone for the top job in the land who doesn't have that kind of experience would be to do something that no major party has ever done, except that one time. Philadelphia, 1940, the Grand Old Party met to choose a nominee to stop a Roosevelt third term. There were two major contenders, New York Governor Thomas E. Dewey and Ohio Senator Robert Taft. Ohio and New York, that was a pretty common Republican rumble since the Civil War. There were many other candidates, but it was mainly a race among these two. This situation was reflected in the first ballot, Dewey 360, Taft 189. And the second, Dewey 338, Taft 203. It was reflected in a Gallup poll, which showed Dewey with 67% support among Republicans in May 1940. Clear frontrunner. One could see the situation in the hotel bookings in the city of brotherly love that year. At the Hotel Walton, candidate Dewey had 78 rooms and a banner across the entrance. While Taft took 102 rooms in various hotels, Warwick Hotel, the Ritz-Carlton, the Adelphia, and the Bellevue. If it came down to the swank factor, one of these two men would be the party's nominee that year. Yet it was a man in a single suite at the end of a corridor of the Benjamin Franklin Hotel, who would, after the first two days, dominate attention. Wendell Wilkie, the former head of a utility company, A former Democrat, a giant bear of the man, who took on Roosevelt's eggheads in radio debates and earned the respect of many, who testified in congressional committees, presenting another side of the New Deal equation, defending private enterprise. Why, he had good reason to. His own business, his own utility company, was taken over by the government. Wilkie had something else going for him. Of all the serious 1940 GOP contenders, Only Wilkie had spoken out against isolationism and spoken out against Hitler. England and France, he said, are our first line in defense. If we allow Britain to fail, Germany will control the Atlantic. He was impatient with the GOP that was isolationist. If we say Europe is none of our business, we might as well fold it up. A Republican candidate who agreed with the president on foreign policy? It was strange, but it also got a lot of press. And it got Wilkie support on either coast among particularly liberal Republicans who started Wilkie clubs. The words meant a lot more after the German blitzkrieg that crushed France. From the invisible showing in May, Wilkie rose to 17% of the polls. And right before the convention, 29% of GOP voters said they vote for him. The newspapers in the East and the mainline Philadelphia GOP took his banner. 
Wilkie clubs formed all over the country, 700 before the convention started. By the time of the convention, most delegates were against Wilkie, didn't know what he was doing at the convention at all, or why this former Democrat was a contender even, but Wilkie supporters were filling the galleries. Wilkie told a reporter it was not that he was a hell of a fellow. He said, I think it just means I represent a trend or I'm ahead of a trend. In today's TV and constant poll politics, the Wilkie story might never have happened. Indeed, he would have been too far ahead of a trend. Some other Republican might have looked beyond the politicos and saw that GOP voters weren't buying isolationism anymore. Hell of a fellow or not, Wilkie was as good as a stumper as the GOP had during the Depression years. He gave some of the old political lines, We must not promise jobs until we turn industry loose to make those jobs. We must not express sympathy for the unemployed and then tax profits so outrageously that the money will not flow into new industries or make new jobs. These are the type of lines that you could very well hear in Iowa or New Hampshire in 2011. But he also gave different kind of speeches, ones that might even resonate today. Of backroom politicians, Wilkie said, they fall all over their own feet. My nomination proves that. I'm a different kind of egg than the pros ever dealt with, and they don't know what to make of it. He admired Churchill. No one just says what they mean anymore. People deserve that. And it shouldn't take an invader to come to a country's door to get it. And straight talking Wendell continued to a Kansas audience, he said, If you want to vote for me, fine. If you don't, go jump in a lake. Facing a president known for his stirring radio speeches and seen as charismatic among the voters, Wilkie offered something different to the party of Lincoln. The Lord gave us Wilkie, one Philadelphia Republican said. With the nomination deadlock, a few Native Sun candidates, now these are people who come to the convention with only the delegates from their own state, usually the governor of a state, Harold Stassen, for instance, from Minnesota. He was 33, he was the boy governor, he's too young to be president. He came with a load of delegates. A lot of these Native Sons started flocking to the Wilkie cause. And with each ballot, he got more and more support. Then a big contender, Vanderburg of Michigan, folded. It was pretty clear who the crowd watching this convention, either in the galleys or on the streets of Philadelphia, were backing. Every time a state announced Wilkie votes, the crowd cheered. When they announced votes for other candidates, they booed. Newspapers bland pro-Wilkie headlines, and telegrams of support arrived to the hotels so the delegates could read it. Party old-timers called them the nine-minute wonder and Hobson's choice in ridicule. But on the fifth ballot, he overtook the frontrunner, Thomas Dewey. Taft surged a little in a kind of stop-Wilkie movement in the fifth ballot, but on the sixth, Wilkie won it outright. It was called the Miracle of Philadelphia. Nobody knew quite what happened, but they knew that the supporters in the galleys and the media had quite a bit to do with it. Wilkie had won a stunning victory in this convention battle. Without entering a single primary, he took the nomination, former Democrat. Yet the general election was a different story. Wilkie took to the stumps. He made some fantastic speeches, but couldn't get FDR in his sights. And never would FDR agree to debate him on the radio as he wanted. He attacked FDR first for not being prepared enough for war, but then later attempt to gain the isolationist vote back by accusing FDR of secretly planning to take the U.S. to war. He held his own in his polls despite these problems of fights with the GOP leaders, yet Wilkie's supporters were not bothered. 
This candidate was different from Alf Landon. He was different from Herbert Hoover, who many wanted to run again. This GOP candidate could take Democratic voters. They figured he had 16 million reliable GOP votes he could count on. There were 9 million independent voters. If he could get 6 million of them in the 1940 election, he could snatch the presidency from Franklin Roosevelt. On election day, he got those 6 million voters and a little more. He earned 22.5 million votes and won 10 states. The trouble is Franklin Roosevelt got 27 million. I tell the story of Wendell Wilkie because the idea of a Wilkie-type candidate is a worthy subject with so many candidates running for the 2012 nomination now. Indeed, Sean Wooster writes on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site, when was the latest a presidential candidate entered and became a nominee or a president? I think this field could still expand, so writes Sean Wooster. Okay, thanks, Sean, and I do agree. It could certainly still expand, and you could see a few more candidates. When was the last time a candidate entered so late and then became president. We'll start with that, president before challengers. In October 1991, Bill Clinton stood on the steps of the state capital, Little Rock, and declared that he was running for president. That was fairly late. But President George H.W. Bush was high in the approval ratings in 1991, and as a result of the Gulf War, all of the action happened a bit later in that election. In terms of a person who was just the nominee and how what was the latest that decision was made. Let's see. Nominees get a little bit harder. Uh, Gore, Dole, Dukakis, Mondale, McGovern. These were known candidates the year before. Humphrey earned his nomination at the raucous convention of 1968. And he hadn't participated in all of those primaries because the battle had been between McCarthy and Kennedy. But... It was pretty well known that he was a contender and could have got the nomination at the convention. Can't exactly call the vice president of the United States an unknown. Let's see. 1960 nominee, John F. Kennedy, had been running since his Senate re-elect in 1959. Goldwater's being asked to run in 1960. He mounted a little effort at the convention. I've talked about that before and organizing before then. So I'll say this to you. It's possible someone could still enter this field, a complete unknown, I've heard recently some grumblings about Pataki. Maybe that will happen. I was surprised, for instance, to see that Rick Perry didn't wait a few months. I think as a sitting governor of a large state, he would have had the cachet to wait. But Giuliani's debacle in Florida is probably a warning to all late entrants. And I suppose the rush for commitments and momentum is so great now as to pull even the big planets into the presidential race orbit. Kerry is a great advantage because the South Carolina primary will act as a bit of a firewall for him, protecting conservatives from any upstarts in New Hampshire since 1980, moved up South Carolina primary. It's interesting to see the growth of the Iowa straw poll. First conducted in 1979, it reflects the Mo power in American elections, right? I've talked about it in the past, it's a race to be in the race. Iowa's already about getting momentum on New Hampshire. That was utilized by McGovern in 1972 to try to build some momentum on Ed Muskie, who was leading in the polls in the time. And then Jimmy Carter matched his tactics exactly and uh, won the Iowa caucus. There's not a good history so far of straw poll winners winning the nomination. George H.W. Bush won it in 1980. Pat Robertson won in 1988. Mitt Romney won in 2007. They didn't go on to be the nominees. Now you have a straw poll that has... 
arguably boosted Michelle Bachman a little bit, keeping her in that realm of the three or four top of the contenders. But it also forced a dropout. Tim Pawente, I mean, a big one, too. Tim Pawente, the former uh, Minnesota governor, is out. Couldn't match the money. It was too crowded of a field. It's interesting to see how much even this little seemingly unimportant event has advanced. Okay, so Samita Hudson writes, Bruce, looking at history and seeing how the, quote, free market of the Industrial Revolution created the horrible working conditions and lifestyle that precursed the need for unions, the minimum wage, etc. And looking at how regulation and the free market created the Great Depression, which precursed the need for national social welfare, then why do people seem so myopic to how life was before these programs and how much we need these programs today? I can only imagine that those who lived through the Great Depression have passed on, and with them, their perspective. Any thoughts? This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Asumita, bold statement. Very bold. A lot of people disagree with you, but I get what you're saying. And there's a lot there. So let me take the most narrow point that you make first. And that is, if we let certain programs go, Social Security, Medicare, just to pull out a few, maybe unemployment, what happens? For the moment, let's assume I have no opinion whatsoever on these programs and in a heartbeat would let them slip away. I'm just not going to enter that debate. I merely raise this point. Are you prepared for what life was like before those programs? Have we taken for granted the positives so that now we only see the negatives? And there are negatives to every government program, most notably the contribution to the deficit. This is where history can be helpful, though. Social Security was created not just to help the old impoverished. That was partially the goal, of course. It was a jobs program. Coax people out of jobs, and younger people can get promoted or hired. Did you ever get a promotion because someone older left? Hired because a person retired and the position was open? Moreover, would you even know if it happened? Social Security doesn't cover all of a person's expenses, but absent it, I'm not sure people would easily leave jobs and it might not open up new jobs and new promotions for younger people. Compare it perhaps to an antibiotic. Stop taking it and the effect goes away. Now, what might be the counter to my own argument that if you take away these programs, the core programs, you get all those negative effects? Counter might be, do you want to be on antibiotics forever? If it is an antibiotic, when do we get off it? It's not 1934, one might argue. People may have more individual assets than they did then, and there could be a great benefit to the federal budget and our taxes if we abandon such a program, freeing up the government to provide, uh, say, a large stimulus form of a tax credit to, to Americans. That might get us out of this. An opportunity cost to all of these programs. Not surprisingly, you're seeing proposals of a more moderate nature, the privatization of the assets, maybe put some of the Social Security funding into the stock market, try to get a better gain, perhaps increasing the retirement age, given the lifespan. 
staving off colas, the cost of living adjustments. This is your narrow point. I think your larger point is a question really about the free market. And you put it in quotes in your question as a solution to our problems. How much or how little government is a permanent question of the republic? It never has ended. It didn't go away when the Jeffersonians took over the government of the United States, trimmed some, but didn't quite eliminate government, not during the 20s or the 30s, when we tried extremes of both ways, extreme laissez-faire and the New Deal. Nor is this debate over today. It's easy like to mock a uh, deregulation scheme, let's say, especially when it doesn't work. It's easy to mock a very myopic view. But, you know, you can't argue the free market is unquestionably the best system for distributing goods and services. And it's easy to mock a government attempt to do this. Free individuals choose what they want and pay for it. The men who introduced it into Western life, Smith and Ricardo, they were radicals in their time. A time when the concepts like just prices and strict licensing by kings existed. Only certain people could participate in business. We embrace the radical ideas with some hiccups. We don't like layoffs. We don't like foreign competition, scabs, shoddy operators. We privilege certain prices. Right? Not completely free market. House prices? Privileged. They're a subject of national worry. Same thing with farm prices. They're supported in many ways. We attack oil companies when the price of gas goes up. But wait a second. Do we truly have a free market or not? I think free markets are the best to say, I want an iPod, and Apple says 149 and I decide to forego spending on lunches for a month so I can get this iPod. That's my choice. It's an innocent choice, but I do some damage. The deli man loses my business. I send money to a company out of my local area. I allow Apple to keep prices high by my acquiescence to that $149 price, my choice. Others can then not buy the iPod. They can't afford it. And there is no music for them. My actions are free choice, but I'm a villain. But to truly have a free market, one must agree to all of those dark effects, all of those villainous actions that I undertook. Now, come on. I chose an easy example. You know that, of course. Everybody would support me in that. I bought an iPod. I didn't do anything wrong. Most support for the free market is premised on those such easy examples. And they're hard to argue with, right? If the Department of Music chooses my iPod's price, why would anyone ever innovate? We'd never get a better iPod. When free market, though, gets more complex, and this is where I think the debate takes on a new dimension that often doesn't get articulated, is at the higher levels, the finance. Should we, a la Smith, let the market do what it wants and then take the consequences? When they get more and more complicated with transactions that we don't understand, such as mortgage securities and default swaps, it's not iPods anymore. When there are giant booms and giant busts, which impact millions of people, there is enough history in what we already have from the beginning of American history to the present. I realize I'm limiting it to a discussion in the United States right now. For instance, the panic of 2008 is... Similar to the Panic of 1857, the Panic of 1837, same type of thing. Overheated, complicated financial tra transactions most people didn't understand was an accelerant of a particular market. Railroad, western land, suburban homes, whatever it is, leading to a large and complex crash for which there was no immediate recovery. So what's the solution? Do we allow the government 
to be the one that distributes goods and services that determines how much everyone gets paid? Free markets might be superior at distributing goods. What does the government do well? I think governments are good at enforcing mutually agreed values. Agree that as a society we have a certain value, and of course that's subject to a lot of debate. You have to rely on a government to enforce it. It's very difficult to get that done through the free market. Universal education sounds like a cherished value, and I believe in America it is. But I don't believe it would happen in a truly free market. There are some parents who would continue to have their children working. Indeed, that's what happened in history. It's a value imposed by the society. You must send your children to school. Compulsory education. Homeownership is another value aggressively supported in American law through the tax system. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, once quasi-government, now actual government. So I think it's easy to look at an opponent's views and say they're myopic, and sometimes they are, and everybody's got to consider all the points of the debate. But I also have, think you have to truly understand where your own views are coming from, your disaster scenario, and their disaster scenario. Their disaster scenario is the government putting you in a straitjacket. Your disaster scenario is bankers making a lot of money, creating a boom and ruining Americans. You're possibly talking at them. They're talking at you. There is no understanding because no one understands each other's disaster scenario. Carl Williams writes in the My History Could Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site, could you tell a little bit more about Henry Stimson and his influence on U.S. foreign policy? Okay, well, thanks, Carl. Henry Stimson was an influential former Secretary of War and State. He was influential in guiding America away from an isolationist policy. He was Secretary of War under Taft in 1911, and there he oversaw the beginnings of mobilization of an army that would eventually be part of World War I, although he was not uh, serving during that war. Forty years later, he worked for the Democratic President Franklin Roosevelt. During Hoover's administration, as Secretary of State, he opposed Japanese aggression in the Pacific and in Manchuria. When FDR tapped him to be Secretary of War, FDR wanted a Republican in order to help insulate him from political criticism. This is very common. Kennedy did it, Clinton did it, and Obama just did it. Stimson would influence the plan towards Germany and the decision to drop both atomic bombs on Japan. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. might seem that victory in a war, right, is not a debatable issue. We decide to go to war, we're going to beat the enemy. But there's actually a lot of nuance within that question. There certainly was at the end of World War II. Everyone wanted the win, but how we did it was where there was a debate. Now, there were some people, Morgenthau, the Treasury Secretary, is very influential on Roosevelt, 
wanted to absolutely crush Germany and to prevent it from ever making war again. Split it into tiny pieces. Churchill didn't like this. Churchill wanted a buffer between he and Germany. Stimson also opposed the Morgenthau plan. And eventually Stimson's opposition and the opposition of others in the administration led to the abandonment of that plan. Okay, Don McDougall writes, uh, reading a story about the Obama administration exempting schools from the federal law's testing mandate, the No Child Left Behind Act. Can the president just issue waivers exempting laws? The answer to your question, can the president just selectively enforce laws? I mean, generally, no. In this particular case, specifically, yes. The No Child Left Behind Act was an amendment to Linda Johnson's ESEA, Elementary Secondary Education Act, part of the Great Society that provided money to school districts if they implement a plan. The ESEA contains a statutory waiver to allow the president, through the education secretary, it was a position that didn't exist in LBJ's time, but obviously does exist now, to waive provisions where the federal government is out of sync with what state government's doing already. So since the No Child Left Behind Act, which is built on top of the ESEA, this uh, rule applies. It's a nod to federalism and the role of localities in education. Under the Bush administration, Louisiana applied and received a waiver. And President Obama, faced with the prospect of no new education bill passing and the goal of reaching 100% compliance, this was part of the deal that was struck of the, with the No Child Left Behind Act, Every child would read at their grade level in America by 2014. Well, faced with that, we're just simply not going to get there. And given that the House has not fully funded the No Child Left Behind Act anyway, he's planning waivers. But, I mean, an esoteric discussion of one particular policy is probably not what you're looking for here. Theoretically, absent this provision, let's forget about the law for a second, specific law, can a president just selectively enforce things. The president takes an oath of office to take care that the laws of the United States are fully executed. So, no. Yet presidents have attempted all kinds of legal justifications to say, uh, for instance, that they are a branch equal to the legislative and therefore have a role in deciding what to enforce and what not to enforce. The members of the Constitutional Convention had two fears. People just talk about one, but there were two. The fear of executive tyranny, that's the one we know about, horrible experiences with the king, horrible experiences with royal governors and what they did to us colonists. That explains the Declaration of Independence and all its provisions. But after that document, the members of the Constitutional Convention, meeting 11 years later, I like to make time markers, so think of it as the time between today and the Bush-Gore election. There's a lot of time between the Declaration and the Constitution, right? And it was a harrowing time. They fought a war managed by a legislative body, a group of men, Congress, and realized the limits of a legislature doing anything. Then they faced a government under the Articles of Confederation that was generally judged as ineffective. So they instituted a presidency in the new constitution to contradict some of these tendencies. Now, the simple answer is no. Refuse to enforce the law, and you have grounds for impeachment, right? It's, it's, you're violating your oath. That's a pretty severe punishment. The courts may be able to enforce a president. The U.S. versus Nixon precedent says that absent impeachment, the courts are still able to order the executive to do something. The turf war between president and Congress could be a whole podcast. What you want to do is you make the decision about what you don't want, what you do want in our politics is 
try to put aside the current occupant, right? So you have strong feelings about President Obama, or you have strong feelings about the previous occupant, Bush or Clinton. How much power do we give to the Congress? Remembering they change every two years and must vote in majorities to get anything done. Often, any vote involves horse trading and lobbyists will get involved. Give a little to the president, but then you hope he doesn't become too imperial and doesn't use it incorrectly. I hope you've enjoyed this little bit, summer hodgepodge, answering some of the questions. Like the program, please tell someone about it. Thanks for listening. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.